Greetings and welcome to the Dividing Line. We are still here in Phoenix. We don't head out until uh, I don't head out till next uh, week from Friday, week from tomorrow, and um, already got three uh, webcasts um, that I'm gonna be doing other than the Dividing Line <laughs> um, while while on the road, and I've got like six more emails to send to people, and just got something just just a few moments ago. Um, Tim Bushong sent me uh, a contact of someone who wants to uh, discuss things. And uh, <clears throat> I guess uh, someone who works a lot with Church of Christ, uh, which, hey, all the patience to you. <laughs> that's a, yeah, that's a, that's, yeah. Tough group, to, tough group deal. When you can, when you can have four nights in a row of debate on a single Bible verse and really only a single phrase in the Bible, um, yeah, that's that's a level of patience that's um, that's beyond what I possess. <laughs> if you can't if you can't get your point across in uh, in uh, you know one debate, uh, anyway. So looking forward to that. Um, looking forward to being in. I didn't. I should have brought this up. And I think I sent. I think I sent you. Um something uh and but but i think yeah yeah i don't know um you know we have we have the thing on the front of the, the website for the uh, uh conference in littleton and i'm mixing up the next two trips because i'm working on september right now for example uh, we're not exactly sure where the conference the weekend before G3 is going to be. It'll either be in Carlisle or Lancaster, and I looked those up. Now, got to remember, when I lived in Harrisburg, my dad worked in, in Carlisle, so I sort of have some idea where that is. But I looked up the two cities. They're 60 miles apart. I did the hour-and-a-half drive thing last year because I, I totally underestimated... Oh yeah, I totally underestimate how long it takes to get anywhere in Pennsylvania because it is so rural. You're on two lane roads at 45 miles per hour. So, uh, but there was a KOA that looked like it would be just right. There is not a single slot open in that KOA in all of September. And I'm like, what in the world's? Go- it ain't my. Th- they ain't coming for me. So, I don't know what's what's going on there. So I may have some challenges uh, finding a, a location in uh, Pens- Pennsylvania for that one. But anyway, I am confusing stuff because um, I know that uh, for the first time, I'm going to actually uh, be speaking at a church in Amarillo on the way out. Uh, I, I tend to end up going through um, Amarillo. You know, I've got to go through New Mexico. Uh, whether I go north or south doesn't matter uh, that much. And uh, then when, once you get into Texas, very frequently I have stopped to stay at the KOA in Amarillo. And I'm really excited to have a contact there now uh, as far as a, a church to uh, speak at this next time around. Uh, but yeah, I am confusing some of the stops um, in um, July with September because there's only one month between them. <laughs> so we're looking at I don't I can't bring it up on this, but we're looking at nearly ten thousand miles of driving between July and September. Uh, uh, yeah, lots of I'm looking at the truck over there and hoping it's not hearing me. <laughs> Yeah, we're going to be putting some serious, serious miles out for a while. And uh, uh, and there we go. So looking forward to all that and um, trying out some improvements over how we did things last time and Starlink and 5G and all that fun stuff. And Rich has been working on all sorts of stuff that I, I don't know. I've got to plug something into this and plug something into that and... and We'll just have to see how things things go as we uh, as we get going, but uh, it's going to be exciting to be able to be doing all those things on the way, on the road. Excited about that. There is an excellent um, 
what would you call this? Um, come on, open. There you go. Um, political cartoon, commentary cartoon, whatever. It's a mom standing there with a little kid with big old honking ears. That's what I looked like when I was that age. And uh, the sign is the American Academy of Pedia Quack, the American Mania Association. Um, and the mom is saying to the doctor, who's just sort of staring at her, so they can't vote, buy cigarettes or alcohol, or see an R-rated movie, but you think they should be able to permanently alter their bodies without parental consent? And it is just the... Um, did you see the video this morning? Uh, someone posted a video this morning of thieves... And I'm not sure if we're even allowed to call them thieves. I'm not sure if Google will allow us to call them thieves. Um, Underappreciated, oppressed citizens (laughs) running out of a high-end department store in San Francisco with their arms full of stuff. And they don't need to run because no one's going to arrest them or stop them. Uh, The... uh, California, Washington, Oregon, uh, all of these leftist communist states. I've made it very clear. A thievery is fine. Steal whatever you want from anybody uh, as long as it's less than a thousand bucks. Okay. Um, and the, the caption basically was thieves stealing what they can from the stores in San Francisco before those stores close down because those stores are closing down. They are, they're, they're, why shouldn't they? Or why should they stay open? Um, if, if the government has basically said, you can't stop them, we're not going to prosecute them, you just simply have to spend your money, put your stuff out there, and let people take it. And if they choose not to pay for it, well, that's just what you have to do. Well, the only rational response to that is to go, bye-bye, see you later. Um, we're not going to do this anymore because this is insane. And so you're, you're watching these major cities and these major states committing cultural suicide right in front of us. And by the way, I didn't close the door all the way, if you're interested. Um, it, it, they're just committing cultural suicide right in front of us. It's the death throes of a dying society. Because what's wrong with poor people stealing stuff? They're made in the image of God, that's why. And God says don't steal. They're not stealing to eat. They're stealing to sell to get drugs. vast majority of them are. You know that. Everybody knows that. That's just common sense. Well, it's equity. No, it's not. That's called communism. And that's absurd. And it is disrespectful to mankind. And it's evil. And it should cause you to be shamed, but not these days, not right now. And there was an announcement of a um, of a uh, lawsuit by someone who was quote unquote transitioned. I've said from the start, there's no such thing. There, there is, there is no such thing as transitioning. It's not possible. It is a fiction. It it, it doesn't exist. Um, even if somehow, and you know, this is science fiction, but even if somehow, uh, cause they, they did it in Star Trek, <laughs> you can do anything in Star Trek if you want to, um, even if they found a way to change your genetics, you know, maybe through the transporter, uh, they did that in Picard season three, right at the end. Remember, if you remember that, um, that wouldn't change the fact that you were created, you were born as a male or a female. We can't do that. Probably never will be able to do that. Shouldn't ever do it, even if we found out a way to do it. And so it's a... Transitioning is, a, is, is fiction. It doesn't, it's, it doesn't actually happen. Instead, you have the mutilation of human bodies. And a new lawsuit has been filed by someone who was mutilated... And they are uh, suing the medical authorities that did it. And I say, sue them all. I say, fill the courts up. 
and get the biggest payouts you can. Should you have done it? Of course not. But you couldn't have done it without these money-grubbing, ideologically controlled, medical, quote-unquote, medical people who are using their skills to mutilate human bodies. They should lose every dime they have ever received from it, and I would say there are significantly more just uh, punishments that should be meted out in that uh, in that context, to be perfectly honest with you. But anyway, um, yeah, there is no answer to the uh, the editorial cartoon that I read the quotation from, because it doesn't... We are, we are dealing with absolute insanity. Um... Uh, more and more states moving to the we will take your children from you if you're if your 11 year old contacts the authorities and says i want puberty blockers i i'm a girl but i i'm i'm a boy trapped in a female body more and more states are saying we'll help you kid whether your parents want to do it or not we'll do it for you yeah. Um, look, th- there's only there's only two options: to that revolution, um, or get out of those states as fast as you can. And when those people leave those states and come to our states, we need to tell them, "Don't be idiots," and bring that stupidity here. Uh, I've said more than once: uh, the state comes after my grandkids. I'll lay down my life. And I'll take as many people with me as I can, because that's that's when when do you when do you stand up against any kind of evil? I mean, this is the most this is the most insane evil the world's ever seen. This is this is Auschwitz level evil, and it's happening in the United States, in the legislatures of the states, right in front of our eyes. And we just go on going, hey, the U.S. Open's on. Okay, who cares? It's amazing. You know, we we close our ears to the experimentation they did on people than the Nazis did because they were just so terrible and horrible. And what are we doing now? What are we doing now? It is truly, truly astonishing. Um... And that's why they can only respond by censoring these things. They can't. None of these people could ever do a moderated debate equal time with cross-examination. Can you imagine what cross-examination would be like? Because we sometimes watch these people testifying before Congress, and once in a while, a senator, you know, Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, couple representatives, there's still a few people with a little bit of a backbone, a little bit of a Christian worldview hiding in there someplace, not many. And they will come after them. And they are left stuttering and stammering. Because it's, like, it's just like when I debated Barry Lynn in 2001. We got into cross-examination, and he looked like a deer in the headlights. I guess there might be some people who don't know what that means. <laughs> but it's true. Uh, they they have no responses. They they are not challenged like that when they go on MSNBC and CNN and and uh you know uh, public broadcasting and stuff like that. They're treated as celebrities and they're tossed these little softball uh sized questions that they can knock out of the park. They're never they're never given they're never required to answer serious questions. And you saw what happened with Barry Lynn on that, and that's exactly what would happen if these people ever tried to do an actual debate where they had to answer actual questions in a timed format. Uh, I would love to see it happen, but believe me, um, there are there are... Right now I can name three different people who are trying to put together debates for me uh, as I'm traveling and um, stuff like that. And they struggle mightily to find anyone, especially to address LGBTQI2S plus 
e to the third power, whatever it is they're doing these days, uh, they normally don't even get a response. And the reason's obvious. They know. You know, why did Matthew Vines never debate me when he said he would? Because by the time his book came out, what had become very, very obvious was they had the media. They had the cultural narrative. So why in the world would you give the other side the opportunity to make you look foolish? You're not going to do it. You're not going to do it. So that's where we are uh, at the moment. It is uh, amazing. By the way, I am seeing people on Twitter. <laughs> I just looked over. There's a there's a picture of the back of a Prius. Now the Prius is not the most manly of vehicles. Um, I run over Priuses in my truck. I don't even know if they're there. Um, but <laughs> I don't. But I could. <laughs> I'm sort of. I'm sort of thinking the front end of my truck's about high enough to climb up the back of that without too much trouble. Um, but it's a Prius, and it's got a big old sign across the back. It says, I'm saving fuel to buy more guns. <laughs> I noticed they took the, uh, they, they took the uh, license plate out. They, so I can't tell what state it is, because I, <clears throat> I can't imagine it would be Washington or Oregon or California or uh, anything like that uh, at all. Um, but yeah, that's cute. Um, I'm saving fuel to buy more guns. That might not be a bad if you can get hold of them. All right, let's not get into that right now. Um, that's that's a that's a challenge these days too. All right, I am seeing all sorts of people. Brother Foskey has not seen. Thief in the night. Carla, Carla Rolf has not seen Thief in the Night. And I'm I'm just like You saw it before you were a believer. They showed it on the town square in Prescott? Yes. So so <laughs> the the local you know what is the that door how you is. ended up in a cult? <laughs> you know what the door is, right? I'm sorry? You know what the door is, right? Of course, right? yes. Okay, so the door would... If you've ever seen Billy Jack... Yes. All the karate scenes are done in the town square. Oh. Yes. They in were, Prescott. Yes, in Prescott. Okay. Now... The Which thing, is different than Prescott. And no, there is no Prescott. Okay. It's no. Prescott, okay? And... The people from back east go to Prescott, not Prescott. And they end anyway, up in Prescott anyways. anyway. Anyway, okay. so the um, the town square down there where they have the little commune people walking around down the town square trying to talk to people. I haven't in Billy been. Jack. Uh, I haven't been there in a okay, long time. Okay, so they they picked the perfect setting for it because that's what the door does. Mm. They send parades of people down there with Jack Chick tracks, mm. passing them out. Yeah. Okay, and so you can. You can make a reservation for, you know, behind the big statue of Bucky O'Neill to do different performances and things like that. And so they'll reserve that space and they'll put up a big old uh, TV screen and they'll show a thief in the night. Or the the other one was uh, crossing the switchblade. Right. And then they'd stand up there and preach and stuff like that. Now, I don't know if they've done that since I, you know, left Prescott, but... When I was a teenager, that was real common to go down there, and they would collect a crowd. So, <clears throat> what did they? Uh, what did Bucky O'Neill do? Bucky O'Neill? Yeah. <clears throat> you really want me to tell you about Bucky O'Neill? No. Okay. But what did he do? Why does he have a statue there? He has a statue. He used to be the mayor of Prescott early oh. on. Oh, okay. And when uh, Teddy Roosevelt uh, got the volunteers of the Rough Riders and went down to Cuba, uh-huh. okay, in the Spanish-American War, Bucky joined. He was a captain in in Roosevelt's army, oh, down there, and he died in in the battle down there. Oh, and so he was a town hero. Okay, thank so, you. You're welcome. I I figured if you went to school there, that you, it was sort of required that you know that. Um, so that that's why I asked. So nobody else is really overly concerned about that, but I just had never heard of him. So, all right. Uh, hey, 
I'll have you know that Sam Elliott played his part in a movie. Did you see the picture? Oh, I almost, I wanted to retweet it so bad. I think I saw it on Facebook, though. And it was these two statues in Hungary. And it said when the guy who, who played the bartender in Cheers, Woody Harrel- when Woody Harrelson and the guy you just mentioned, Sam Elliott, um, saved Western civilization because these two statues from, I think, Hungary, they are Sam Elliott and Woody Harrelson. It's, it's the best, best evidence I've ever seen for reincarnation. <laughs> it really, really is. Because these two, these two look, <clears throat> yep, that, mm, that, that's what they would look like if they were fighting back in the 1560s, uh, which is, I think, what, uh, what they will be doing. Anyway, <coughs> on to, yes, on to important things. Sorry. Uh, on to important things. So, um, you may have seen that Pope Francis. Now, let's back up the truck here a second. If I, if a letter came out, a handwritten letter, which is strange these days, anyways, but if a if a handwritten letter came out from me to the people putting on the Revoice Conference. Okay, the Revoice Conference is a Presbyterian pro-homosexual conference. Remember, you know, big topic of conversation, PCA, for years. If a letter came out that I wrote to the people putting on the Revoice Conference, saying, I um, appreciate what you're doing. I hope you have a great conference. God bless you, uh, et cetera, et cetera. What do you think people would would say? Do, do you think people would say, well, there's a real inconsistency there because he has taken the position for years and years and years that this is in opposition to God's will and God's law and God, the scriptures, and you don't write letters of encouragement to people who are putting on conferences like this. Well, <clears throat> Pope Francis um, sent greetings to this year's outreach conference for LGBTQ Catholics. And reading from the article here, in a letter dated May 6th, 2023, Pope Francis has sent his greetings to attendees at the Outreach LGBTQ Catholic Ministry Conference to be held at Fordham University in New York City from June 16th to the 18th, starting tomorrow. That may be why... This has only come out now, even though it was written last month. The handwritten letter sent to James Martin, Jesuit James Martin, the father James Martin, well known for his support of homosexuality and being a homosexual Catholic and so on and so forth. The editor of Outreach thanks him for all the good you are doing and promises his prayers and good wishes to all the participants of the conference. I send my best regards to the members of the meeting at Fordham University, wrote the Holy Father. Thank you for delivering it to them. In my prayers and good wishes, in my prayers and good wishes are you and all who are working at the outreach conference. This is the third letter that Pope Francis has sent in relation to the outreach conference in June of 2021. On the eve of an online conference, he wrote a letter thanking Father Martin for his pastoral zeal for imitating the style of God and to commend him for caring for your faithful, your parishioners. In 2022, after receiving a copy of the program for the second conference, he wrote to Father Martin asking him to continue working in the culture of encounter which shortens the distances and enriches us with differences. Oh, is that, 
is that not a liberation theologian or is that a liberation theologian? Wow. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, okay. Uh, last November, Pope Francis met with Father Martin for the second time in a private audience at the Apostolic Palace, where the two discussed ministry to LGBTQ Catholics. I'm grateful for the Holy Father's warm letter, which is a wonderful blessing for everyone joining us this weekend at the conference, said Father Martin. And it's a special grace for LGBTQ Catholics to know that the Pope is praying for them. This year's outreach conference brings together some 250 LGBTQ Catholics, those who minister with them and their family and friends, to build community, share best practices, and worship together. Participants include theologians, writers, pastoral associates, clergy, members of religious orders, and lay women and men from around the world. Keynote speakers this year are Tanya Tetlow, the president of Fordham University, Juan Carlos Cruz, a member of the Vatican's Pontifical Commission for the Protection of Minors, and Marianne Duddy Burke, the executive director of Dignity USA. The closing Mass on Sunday will be celebrated by Archbishop John C. Wester of Santa Fe, New Mexico. Now think about that. Uh... So, uh, Cardinal Timothy Dolan, Archbishop of New York, welcomed the participants to his archdiocese and echoing the Holy Father. The Holy Father wrote, It is the sacred duty of the Church and her ministers to reach out to those on the periphery and draw them to a closer relationship with Jesus Christ and His Church. Your vital and important ministry is a valuable and necessary contribution to that effort. And, of course, you've also got one from the very Reverend Joseph O'Keefe, S.J., the provincial of the USA East Province of the Jesuits, or the Jesuits. Okay, the Jesuits are the ultra-liberals today, which is ironic given how they started. <laughs> when, when you read Ignatius Loyola, um, Ignatius Loyola would have burned every Jesuit alive with the possible exception of Mitch Paquin. <laughs> That's, in fact, did you see that? I retwe- I think I retweeted a picture of Mitch Pacwa hunting and he has a clergy camo outfit. So it's all camo, but he's got the <laughs> he's got the collar. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Cuz cuz when we debated in the late 90s, he had he had his full priest outfit on, but he was wearing the pointiest cowboy boots you'd ever want to see. Um, and he said they were for kicking New Agers in the butt. That's what he told me. I'm just telling you what, what he said. Um, I love Mitch. Mitch is... <laughs> I, I told someone yesterday, we were talking about Roman Catholicism, and I told someone yesterday, Mitch Pacwa, I have the most respect for Mitch Pacwa of anyone I've debated because he never engaged in cheap debating tricks. Maybe he doesn't know cheap debating tricks. Maybe he's too scholarly to know that kind of stuff. I don't know. But I've said more, I've said over and over again, if you want to hear the best interactions on Roman Catholicism with all all the noise and static that most of the other Catholic apologists produce, uh, the debates with Mitch Pacwa were the were the ones that I would I would point you to. So, yeah, he, he is the most conservative Jesuit I've ever met. And, I, and I, I know other people would say, yeah, he's pretty unique. He doesn't fit in the Jesuits at all. Um, but Ignatius Loyola, without blinking an eye, would have burned every Jesuit alive today. And you want to argue that? <laughs> you want to... You want to look back at what the Counter-Reformation was about, what it stood for, and where the Jesuits are today? Um, Yeah, good luck with that. So, that is related to what this means about the Pope. I have in my hand here um, the paperback copy. I have a nice, um, I'm not sure I have it in here, I think it's I think it's with my in my Roman Catholic section um, in my main library. But I have a nice, big, uh, well-marked uh, hardback copy 
of the Catechism. But I just leave this one here when I need to grab something and look something up. Here is the Catechism Catholic Church, Universal Catholic Catechism. Nice to have something like this. It's pretty big, pretty involved. This one was printed, published and printed in 1993. Okay, so that was 30 years ago. If we're talking about an unchanging church, it shouldn't matter that this was published 30 years ago, right? And yet, there have been changes. Um, let me mention the words of the Catechism the Catechism, the Council of Trent. Now, again, Council of Trent, Counter-Reformation Council, you probably have a much higher level when, when you have documents produced out of controversy, they have a much higher level of specificity because they're having to address specific issues. So the documents that come out um, before the Reformation in light of interactions with Eastern Orthodoxy are going to have more specificity and clarity on the issues that separate East and West at that time uh, than existed before. Then you get to the Council of Trent, and now you have the Reformation. And so the, the Tridentine documents, which give us primarily Thomas Aquinas's theology, soteriology, sacramentology, um, they are given to us in the Canons and Decrees of the Council of Trent, which likewise I do not have in here at the moment. And um, those then became the basis for the 1566, that's 20 years after the beginning of the Council of Trent. 1546. So 1566, they published a catechism. Catechism of the Council of Trent. Let me quote from the catechism of the Council of Trent. The just use of this power, speaking of the death penalty, the just use of this power, far from involving the crime of murder, is an act of paramount obedience to this commandment which prohibits murder. So the Council of Trent, and before this, you could you could create an absolutely airtight argument that the magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church had taught that it is appropriate to execute people for certain heinous crimes, that the death penalty is just and appropriate, and in fact it says here, is an act of paramount obedience to this commandment which prohibits murders. It's talking about the Ten Commandments. It's talking about the commandment not to take life. And I agree with the Council of Trent that a society that will not kill predators but instead um, steals from the rest of us to provide them with food and shelter and medical care for the rest of their lives. Because that's what, if you don't have the death penalty, then that's what you're doing. You're going to put somebody away, and you're going to uh, feed them and clothe them and shelter them, and at least in the olden days give basic medical attention. Now, if you're in California, or if we're talking about federal prisoners they can ask for gender assignment surgery and you'll pay for that. Pretty amazing, isn't it? That is not a society that is protecting life. That's not a society... You know, people say, if you're pro-life, if you're against the murder of a child in the womb, then you should not be for the death penalty. That's an incredibly shallow position to take. 
the same God who said you shall not murder likewise said that if someone does murder, then their life is to be taken by the community, by, we would call it the state today, but by the community, because this is a person, the taking, the taking of innocent life, it's, the issue is innocent life, the taking of innocent life is a fundamental violation of biblical norms, of norms that go all the way back to Cain and Abel. And while a repentant murderer can find forgiveness, they still need to be executed in a just society. But we don't have a just society any longer because we don't believe that men are created in the image of God any longer, and therefore there's no foundation for having justice. It all becomes whatever a particular people group decide at a particular time. Anyway, so to be pro-life is to protect life in the womb and afterwards. And so if someone commits murder, I mean, I, I can't get out of my mind. I haven't, I haven't looked for it. I've thought about doing it. But I, I've mentioned to you once before the video clip I saw on Twitter from Chicago of one individual. These, these people spill out of what's clearly a bar late at night probably gang stuff. And there's one individual goes to his vehicle, gets a semi-automatic pistol. And in cold blood with, without the slightest evidence of remorse, thinking he's the coolest thing on the planet. He killed one, two, three, four, five people from one camera angle. Mercilessly. Shoot them down, then walk up and shoot them right between the eyes. Execution style. And then walks back to the vehicle and gets in with his buddies. That individual must be tried swiftly and executed swiftly. Not 20 years down the road. Not 30 years down the road. Two months down the road. No more, if justice is going to be done. Or just expect the body count to just... How many in Chicago last week? I don't know. There's a whole website that keeps track of it. A couple weeks ago, it was 60-something, 60, 70-something 60, in one weekend. And nobody cares. Nobody says a word about it. If the people on the left had any humanity even left to them, they would be screaming about it. They don't care. That doesn't, doesn't fit the narrative, so it doesn't matter. You see someone like that, and the just thing, the, the loving life thing, is to take that person's life. Because if they're willing to do that, they will do it again given the opportunity. It might be, it might be the, the, the guard in the jail. And with the bleeding heart leftist liberals out there, they might let that person out again. And they'll do it again. And the taking of those innocent lives, that is the great tragedy, biblically speaking. So the council of the, the, the catechism of the Council of Trent was right. The just use of this power, far from involving the crime of murder, is an act of paramount obedience to this commandment which prohibits murder. That was the infallible teaching of the Roman Catholic Church in 1566. It isn't anymore. And here's the evidence. 1993, uh, James Kirk needs his glasses. <laughs> 1993. Um, <clears throat> preserving, this is 2266. The new number in the current catechism is 2267. So there's been some changing of the numeration stuff. Uh, preserving the common good of society requires rendering the aggressor unable to inflict harm. For this reason, the traditional teaching of the church has acknowledged as well-founded the right and duty of legitimate public authority to punish malefactors by means of penalties commensurate with the gravity of the crime. 
not excluding, in the cases of extreme gravity, the death penalty. For analogous reasons, those holding authority have the right to repel by armed force aggressors against the community in their charge. The primary effect of punishment is to redress the disorder caused by the offense. When this, when his punishment is voluntarily accepted by the offender, it takes on the value of expiation. Moreover, punishment has the effect of preserving public order and the safety of persons. Finally, punishment has a medicinal value. As far as possible, it should contribute to the correction of the offender. That's the penitentiary concept there. Capital punishment. Within the teaching of the church, this is, this is what it's saying. Consistent, traditional teaching of the church. The state has that right. 2018, Francis says, nope. Francis says, nope. And he changed, as I said, what is now 2267. So, the new, the new version of 2267. Recourse to the death penalty on the part of legitimate authority following a fair trial was long considered an appropriate response to the gravity of certain crimes and an acceptable, albeit extreme, means of safeguarding the common good. Today, however, there is an increasing awareness that the dignity of the person is not lost even after the commission of very serious crimes. In addition, a new understanding has emerged of the significance of penal sanctions imposed by the state. Lastly, more effective systems of detention have been developed, which ensure the due protection of citizens, but at the same time do not definitively deprive the guilty of the possibility of redemption. Consequently, the church teaches, in the light of the gospel, that the death penalty is inadmissible because it is an attack on the inviolability and dignity of the person. And she works with determination for its abolition worldwide. End quote. Okay. Now, you can stand on your head, you can spin in circles, you can... um, Drink all the Bud Light you can find, because there's plenty of it around these days, because nobody else is drinking it. Um, And make yourself just completely sauced. You can't put those two things together. You cannot get around the fact that the Pope changed what the Church taught was her consistent tradition all along. If the Pope's right now... This is wrong. If the Pope's right now, the Council of Trent was wrong. And I know what you have to do. Well, you know, catechisms aren't dogmatic. And this statement isn't... You have to start doing... You have to start doing what lawyers do. To try to get around the fact that your client has contradicted himself. I remember clearly, and I've talked about this more than once, I remember clearly when we first first started engaging with Roman Catholics, Catholic answers specifically, the big attraction in a changing world, and things weren't changing nearly as fast back then as they are now, but in a changing world, we have stability. We have sameness. We have an infallible source of authority. And all you've got is the Bible, and so sola scriptura is the blueprint for anarchy, and blah, 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 blah. And now you've got Francis. And all of you honest Roman Catholics know, you know, that your current epistemological nightmare may not end with Francis. Remember just a few months ago, he's putting people with a pro-choice background on papal commissions. Remember that? Scandalous. Absolutely scandalous. Who am I to judge? Homosexuality, right? You know, 
And you all of a sudden are going, man, with the with the Catholic bishops, or the German bishops in schism, we need leadership right now. Sort of like people in the United States going, <laughs> Tony Blinken's about to go to China. He is going to be made a fool of there. Well, he's pretty foolish as it is, and that's why, but uh, he's going to be made a fool of there. And we, we're, we're like, man, we could really use real leadership right now, and we don't have any anywhere. Nobody in this regime uh, has any leadership capacity at all. Well, look at the situation Rome's in. The German bishops are in schism, and what's Francis doing? You you know you don't have any any uh, in your honest. You may not say this to other people, but in your heart, you know you do not have any trust in this man as a leader. You don't. If you're just being honest with yourself. And here is a clear example. Here is the church in 1566. Here's a church in 1993. Here's a church in 2023. Saying different things. Not just different things, not just a slightly changed thing, but absolutely in utter contradiction. The Pope here is calling for the church to work with determination for the abolition of capital punishment worldwide. And that same allegedly infallible church, at the very time of exercising that charism of infallibility in the Counter-Reformation, and anathematizing Protestant teaching, says, nope, Um, this is actually vitally important to the preservation of life and the respect of life. They were right back then. Wrong now, right back then. So here's the issue. The Pope writes to the homosexual promoting Jesuits and says, way to go, guys, praying for you. Hope you have a great conference. And what we're being told is, well, there's a, there's, it's not an official statement. And he doesn't say, I define and defend. And do, 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 do. I remember a pope named Honorius wrote a letter to Sergius, another bishop in, in the East. And what he said in that letter on a theological issue led to his being identified as a heretic and anathematized by every person who took his position as Bishop of Rome for 400 years. By name, they had to anathematize him. Why doesn't this letter represent what the Pope actually believes? Well, hey, as long as he doesn't define it, is that really all you've got? Is that really all you've got? Well, as long as you doesn't... So, Pope Francis kicks over next month, dies of some mysterious disease, or just resigns. That's a possibility, too. What? Are they allowed to impeach him? Well, there you go. Um, he dies. He resigns. Your greatest nightmare is who's next. Because he's filled the College Cardinals with his own acolytes. There's enough liberation theology amongst the Cardinals to choke a horse. And you can sit there and say, well, we can make a liberation theology fit with... No, you can't. No, you can't. Don't look me in the eye and say that liberation theology as believed today by Francis is consistent with the theology of the Pope who wrote um, the Papal Syllabus of Errors. Don't, don't even try. And in fact, you should be ashamed to even think it. You know it's not true. You know in your heart of hearts that they don't believe the same thing. And you know what this Pope believes You know what he believes about homosexuality. Where are the statements during Pride Month from the Vatican 
defending those of us who are getting buried in this sewer. I'm thankful for Roman Catholic friends that recognize the utter degradation, because it is, of homosexuality and transgenderism and all the rest of this kind of stuff. I, I appreciate that. But I feel sorry for you. Because your Pope doesn't agree with you. Oh, he may say, well, you know, it's disordered and you know, he'll repeat some of the stuff that's said. If you believe that, you don't write these letters. And you know it. You know it. Quit trying to make excuses. Isn't that... For Catholic apologists, since Francis became Pope, full-time job, making excuses for Francis. That's what you do. You make excuses for Francis. That's not what you guys were doing with John Paul II. I've been around long enough to know that you're you're doing things differently than you used to do. And you know it too. And so Pope Francis writes to Father Martin and demonstrates that there is clearly a functional disconnection between the official position of the Vatican that homosexuality is a disordered desire and where the Pope is in his own thinking. Because if you if you understand, see, one of the things, I don't know if you noticed when I read the stuff about capital punishment, you know what was missing from all that? Scripture. Any type of scriptural argumentation. The, the Roman Church doesn't very often argue from that because it's um, scripture only means whatever Rome says it means, and so you know why why have the intermediate step? But there was no scriptural defense of the idea that a murderer has forfeited his own life because that's what it says in Genesis. Because the vast majority of Roman Catholic bishops and archbishops and everybody else now have been taught in educational systems to not believe that Genesis is relevant anyways. It's just ancient Hebrew poetry and it was redacted and changed and edited and there was no Moses and so why even give it a second thought? So that's why you can have a pope that will affirm a, and not very passionately, but affirm the official stance, but then will write private letters like this to demonstrate that when it comes to it come, when it comes to where the, the rubber meets the road, when it comes to application of faith and morals, Rome has come up with this, this idea. Roman Catholic politicians in the United States have adopted the idea that you can be personally against something but not want to push that on everybody else. And so you've got your private life and then you've got your public life. I mean, they've taken radical two kingdom to its ultimate ultimate perspective. And so I'm personally opposed to abortion, but I would not want to force that upon anyone else. I'm, the, in this situation, well, the church teaches that homosexuality is a disorder, but, but who am I to judge? And, you know, uh, we want you all together worshiping with us, and we'll do the Mass. Hey, look, listen to me. Um, I thought you all took the Mass seriously. I thought that all this stuff about transubstantiation, propitiatory sacrifice, real presence, we used to debate that stuff. I I thought it was the central act of Roman Catholic worship. But if the bishop in San Francisco can tell Nancy Pelosi 
don't bother coming to Mass because you are consistently pushing the murder of unborn children. Good job, dude. And then she goes to Rome and the Pope allows her to go to Mass in Rome, totally undercutting the Bishop of San Francisco. Don't tell me you take that thing seriously. Don't, don't tell me. And if you've got these high-level people performing Mass at the Catholic equivalent of the Revoice Conference, don't tell me you actually believe that's the sacrifice of Christ. It's a propitiatory. Don't, don't even bother. You're way too inconsistent. You're contradicting yourself right, left, and center. Don't bother. So, I, I, unless something happens, I'm probably going to outlive Francis. Okay? So I'm going to get to see this successor. And if he is, if he continues in the mode of Francis, what are you all going to, how many red pills is it going to take before you start realizing because I, I, I said, hey, can, when, can Rome change its view on this subject? And I had a number of people, including, yes, my dear friend out there, I, I saw your tweet. A lot of people said, nope, can't do it. Francis has done it on the death penalty. Don't, don't tell me there's not a difference between 1566 and 20. Okay, that's 500 years. It's true. Well, not quite 500 years, but close enough. That's true. And I recognize that it would be difficult on a practical level to make a fundamental change in one step. I get that. But he's not doing it in one step. He's filling the Papal Biblical Commission with his acolytes. The Cardinals with his acolytes. And that is changing everything. And the fact of the matter is, what you believe is, when, the, when it comes down to it, you have one ultimate authority, even in the interpretation of what the church has taught in the past. And it's that Bishop of Rome. When the Babylonian captivity of the church, that schism was healed by a council. The papacy couldn't do it. The papacy could not heal the schism. The Council of Pisa couldn't do it, ended up with three popes. When the Council of Constance finally did that, there was a point right then where there was the possibility that conciliarism might have a chance. The pope crushed it. And pretty much from that point onward, and with Vatican one, you can't you can't get away from it. Vatican one makes the Pope the final interpreter of the Christian tradition itself. And so if you're sitting here going, Yeah, you know, Francis well, Francis can reinterpret our tradition that we've said was constant and negate it. That's what he's done. Would it be difficult for him to do something on this? He's doing it, but he's doing it slowly. He's doing it incrementally. And on what basis could you ever say he was wrong? You can't. You can try, but you've accepted an unbiblical office. It's been wrong from the start. There's no way around it. But you're stuck with it. There's a better way. There's a way that brings peace. There's a way that brings you a recognition of a right standing with God. Um, and we want to invite you to that and have been for a very, very long period of time. All right. There you go. Uh, yes, sir. On, on that note, um, I noticed last night after you posted the link to this, um, one Jordan Mills had posted, the Pope sending a letter with no dogmatic declaration of any kind for faith or morals 
to an LGBT plus event doesn't really say anything except the fact that Francis is quite liberal. Right. To which I was intrigued by that phrasing, and we've heard it lots of times. Yep. Um, when was the last time that a pope issued a dogmatic declaration of any kind for faith or morals? Not only that, but this was a letter to a priest, a person with position in the church, similar to Honorius's letter to Sergius, mm-hmm. on a matter of faith and morals, on a matter of application of faith and morals right. in the church. And they always want to go, oh, no, no, it's just a personal letter, it doesn't matter. It shows what he believes, right. and it shows the application right. on faith and morals. But this is why the whole doctrine of papal infallibility is utterly irrelevant. Well, it's a joke. Because the Pope is right unless he's wrong, and you never know whether he's wrong or not. And this is their little way of sliding out from underneath yep. it. But again, I'm intrigued by the question because Jordan phrases it, and I'm going, okay, how long has it been since a pope did something of consequence? Because that's Jordan's claim here. Yep. There's nothing to see here, folks. Move, Move along. On. Move on. Nothing important going on. Because unless the Pope does a dogmatic declaration for faith and morals, we don't need to pay attention. So why do you have the Pope then? What good has he been for a He's long, long time? He's worthless according to your own standards. I know. I know it. I know it. And there are a lot of folks out there that know it as well. They just don't know what to do. They just don't know what to do. And I, I, I do not rejoice in that. I just hope and pray that you'll see where where you took the wrong turn, and that there is uh, there is a better way. There is a better way. Yes, sir. Real real quick here, um, Ely, Minnesota. Uh, can we trust the I'm not Bible? Say, I'm not saying that anymore. I'm just not going to say it anymore. So it's E L Y Minnesota. That's E-L-Y. how I'm going to refer to E L Y Minnesota. E-L-Y, E-L-Y. Um, July 14th through the 16th. Uh, James will be speaking at Berean Baptist Church, 2281 Old Highway. This says I-69. It may mean 169. Um, I don't know. Uh, Ely, Minnesota. And uh, I will be posting this to the calendar and getting all that up there. But on Friday night, 7 p.m., how we got our Bibles. Saturday at 10 a.m., the reliability of the Bible. Uh, there will be lunch, 2 p.m. Doctrine of Sola Scriptura, 7 p.m. Sufficiency of Scripture, then Sunday morning at 9 a.m., Bible translations. I guess that's going to be Sunday school. And then at 10.30, the worship, you'll be preaching what is the gospel. And so, uh, folks, if you are planning on going to this, you need to contact the church and RSVP uh, at 218 365 Five four one three or email one truth north, all one word one truth north at gmail dot com and let them know that you are planning on coming. So because they are that. north, oh yeah, almost Canada, almost man, yeah. very close. Yeah, you you're gonna have to watch your your accent up there. Just a little bit, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm just. Go, I'm going to Ely, Minnesota. That's just. That's all I'm going to say from now on is Ely, Minnesota. Um, yeah, it's going to be a. It's going to be a fast trip up there, long days, and um, um, but but along the way, along the way, finally, after all these years, after all these years, I am having dinner with Milo Hotzenbuehler. Get together with Milo Hotzenbuehler after all these years, um, having him on the program and and the old chat channel and all the rest of that stuff. We are going to finally get to meet uh, as I drive up to Ely, <laughs> Minnesota. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that greatly. All right, thanks for listening to the program today. Uh, we will see. Yeah, we will. We are here next week, uh, even though I will be picking up the unit and and we'll. We, Rich and I have got lots of work to be doing and stuff like that on that. But we will uh, still be here in the studio. I need to get into the other studio. I feel sorry. Oh, it's a mess? Oh, it is? Oh. Oh. I see. 
So I was going to say, we need to have some programs next week over there, but the, the look on Rich's face is like, Oh, really? <laughs> we'll see what happens. We'll see you next week. God bless.